ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How did some Jewish intellectuals try to make the West safe for Christianity? And how has their legacy felt in the global politics of today? Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen with the final show of the 2023 season. Now, after World War II, a group of mainly Jewish intellectuals discovered their true mission in life. Apparently, it was to rebuild a Christian world from the ashes of an absolutely horrific conflict. These were the Cold War liberals. They thought the West was in this contest with communist Russia to claim democracy and human rights, and religion was a very powerful weapon for them. But historian Samuel Moyne says their good ideas went grievously awry, and in many ways we live with the consequences to this day. Samuel Moyne is a philosopher and a professor of law and history at Yale University. His new book is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. The Cold War liberals cultivated their views in response to events like the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of National Socialism and World War II, but above all, became famous as a school with the coming of the Cold War in the later 1940s. They believed rightly that they were in a global contest, at least ideologically, if not militarily, with the Soviet Union and the communist idea. And for that reason, they reconfigured what they said liberals should stand for, because they thought it would make the liberal creed more defensible and more distinctive from what the Soviets, for their part, were offering. Liberals had once been the ones in world history offering freedom and emancipation on egalitarian terms. But they saw in the middle of the 20th century, the Soviets claimed to do the same thing better. And in response, liberals tended to adjust what they stood for and claimed that offering too much could lead straight into the arms of the Soviet Union. And so they said people should expect less from liberalism. Mm -hmm. They had pretty good reason, though, to be Cold War liberals in this sense. I looked up a New York Times article, I think from early 1989, where Mikhail Gorbachev, I mean, one of the greatest statesmen of the 20th century, he'd opened the, the Soviet archives and the historian Roy Medvedev, he estimated that Stalin killed, in addition to the tragic losses in World War II, something like 20 million people. So at their core, was their cause right? I think that these Cold War liberals were correct to oppose the Soviet Union. The question is what they did to liberalism in the name of that struggle, which of course led Western states to take an enormous number of lives themselves around the world in places like Korea and Vietnam. My empathy for these Cold War liberals is real, but it also has to have limits because they suffered tragedy. Many were Jews who were distraught by the fall of democracy in Germany, which many fled, and their people 
you know, experienced dire straits in World War II, clearly, and the Soviet Union was horrific. And yet the question is whether the Cold War liberals overcorrected, which I think is what matters now, because that overcorrection of liberalism in the light of the Soviet threat left a substantial legacy later. Mm. Which we're going to get into, but you touched on something that just uh, recurs throughout this book, and I just found it absolutely intriguing. You mentioned that their leading lights were Jewish. Was there something, not just in the tragedy of the Shoah, but was there something in their Jewish upbringing, their Jewish understanding uh, that put them at the forefront of this struggle? I think it's hard to say. It's tempting to think that it was just natural to respond to the long history of the persecution of Jews or it's the extermination of Jews in World War II by reconfiguring liberalism. But actually, Jews were doing a lot of different things in the middle of the 20th century, many embracing socialism or refusing the terms of Cold War liberalism. There's no doubt that it mattered to these figures that the state of Israel was founded. It's very interesting that though they were generally pretty skeptical of the decolonization of the British and French and other empires around the world, they were very enthusiastic about the founding of the state of Israel. So the question of how they live their Jewish identities is pretty complicated. Mm. And I think we should beware of a kind of simplistic story whereby it was just you know, natural for them to respond to their own flight because many were exiles or the experience of their people and just naturally came up with Cold War liberalism mm. rather than reached it through making a lot of choices because, of course, we have to make choices about what to do with our liberalism. Well, we're going to come back to that blind spot that you referred to there later. But one of the things that makes this combination of their Jewishness and their liberalism so fascinating was that you argue that they were in many ways fighting for a world in which the Christian ethos would be prominent. It's very interesting that some of the earliest Cold War liberals were Jews, but rarely interested in the Jewish religion. If they were interested in any religion, it was most frequently the Christian religion. And that's because across the Cold War liberal world, the Soviets, who claimed proudly the mantles of atheism and secularism, led many in the West, especially in the 1940s and early 1950s, to embrace a Cold War Christianity as almost like a talisman that could ward off the secular evil of communism. And Jews were a big part of this. There were some Protestants like the American Reinhold Niebuhr Mm. who were equally famous for retrieving a kind of Augustinian Christianity, which was pessimistic, much like Cold War liberalism about the human prospect. But Jews, in my book, I study one who later became a neoconservative named Gertrude Himmelfarb, were equally interested in reclaiming Christianity, which they thought it was very important for liberals to take seriously as part of the Cold War liberal team 
against the secularism that the Soviets reclaimed. Yeah, you call Gertrude Himmelfarb an apostle of Jewish Christianity. I can see where you're taking this because, yes, if we look, for example, at a president like Dwight David Eisenhower, who in many ways was an extremely moderate Republican president, he embraced uh, the New Deal, but I think it was Eisenhower who first really put religion at the centre of uh, almost American governmental life. I think he inserted the phrase under God into the Pledge of Allegiance, and I I think he put some religious references on the money. That's absolutely right. In God we trust. I mean, it's many historians have shown just how central a kind of re-Christianization of the West was after World War II. And I think we can't forget that fact. And what that means is that as much as we'd focus on the role of secular Jewish intellectuals in building Cold War liberalism, many of them, like Himmelfarb, were not writing about Judaism, but Christianity and the virtues of Christian belief. And she also was central to the revival of Christian liberals from the 19th century, like Lord Acton, precisely because they shared this Augustinian view of the human situation. Don't hope for too much because original sin weighs everyone down. And that had secular lessons that were useful in this Cold War struggle against the allegedly utopian Soviet Union. Just before we move on from this, it's easy, though, to imagine their affinity with some kind of uh, Christian worldview because you quote, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville, that great chronicler of early 19th century America, the Frenchman, but he had observed, I think, that Christianity had been transmuting into some form of democracy for quite a while. I would probably argue since the Reformation, inch by inch, questioning the power of the papacy and and democratizing religion. So it's not that unusual, is it, or that surprising? Not at all. And of course, Christianity was so important and remains in some respects so important to the history and the intellectual lives of many countries that we should expect to see it everywhere. But a figure like Tocqueville or someone across the Rhine like G.W.F. Hegel really incarnated a kind of different strand of Christianity. We call that Pelagian as distinct from the Augustinian, more pessimistic strand. And on that view of Christianity, which Tocqueville really did incarnate, democracy was providential and it was bringing immense new opportunities. Liberalism was emancipatory. It had its risks. But He didn't dwell on the sink of iniquity that humans inherited from Adam and Eve's sin. It's really this move from a more Pelagian approach to a more Augustinian approach that ended up making Cold War liberalism distinctive. This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West. We are speaking with one of our favourite guests, actually, uh, Sam Moyne, about Sam's new book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Time. So, Sam, you're not just a historian and a philosopher. You're also a law professor and... I have to say the lawyer in you has filed a pretty heavy indictment against the post-war liberals. Here's the rap sheet. It's on page 89. Cold War liberals abandoned the Enlightenment, stigmatised romanticism and dug the grave of reason in history. Okay, why do you argue, first of all, that they abandoned the Enlightenment? 
Well, to begin with, Andrew, maybe this is just an American perspective, but I was schooled on Cold War liberalism. And at the end of the Cold War in 1989, when you might expect its premises to be abandoned, it was embraced again. And many of the figures I talk about in my book were treated as mystics or sages. Mm. I thought it was time to take that movement called Cold War liberalism down a peg, especially because some of its after effects may have been less defensible than the movement seemed at the time it took root. So what I mean by saying it abandoned enlightenment is that if you look at some of the Cold War liberal figures, I talk about the Oxford Don Isaiah Berlin, they become very nervous because they know that the Soviet Union is claiming to be the heir of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, just what liberalism had once said about itself. And liberals were faced with a kind of momentous choice. Do we dispute the claims of the Soviet Union to inherit the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, or do we let the Soviet Union, in a sense, have those things and criticize them? They often made that second choice. Berlin is a really interesting case because whenever he thought about the Enlightenment, he really was thinking about how it had paved the way for the Soviet Union. And so he was remorseless mm. in his criticisms of the Enlightenment, even though it made the modern world possible. And in private correspondence, Berlin could concede that there had been good things in the Enlightenment, which he said he just didn't emphasize because he didn't want to give it too much credit out of fear of making it seem as if the Soviet Union would benefit from all the claims it was making to be the representative of the Enlightenment and reason in politics in his own time. Didn't they claim that the French Revolution was a way station on the way to the Soviet Union? There's no doubt about that. Communists dominated the whole thinking about the French Revolution mm. in the 20th century. And so it was very hard to take a liberal approach to the French Revolution once the Soviets had claimed it for themselves. Mm. There was surely some precursor. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of sure. Robespierre and the, and the Committee for Public Safety. Uh, I know she was a fictional figure, but I, I still can't get Madame Defrage, <laughs> Dickens' character, yes. uh, out of my yes. mind, sitting at the bottom of the guillotine, knitting as the heads roll into the basket. Did they not have, have some justification for thinking that they what did. begins with pretty words ends yes. in bloodshed? That's a really important point, Andrew. These events, the Enlightenment intellectually and the French Revolution politically, set up a lot of future possibilities. But just because they set up the possibility of communism in the Soviet Union doesn't mean they didn't set up the possibility of liberalism before. It was very fateful that in response to the Soviet retroactive claims that the Enlightenment was just theirs, and the French Revolution was a simple gift to their revolution later. Liberals conceded the Enlightenment and French Revolution were these simple matters, and actually they're very complicated. The Enlightenment had a skeptical side. If you reject the Enlightenment and stand for obscurantism, then you're making a claim that states can't plan social organization the welfare state was a planning state in the 1940s. 
and depended on enlightenment inspiration. The French Revolution birthed a lot of things like the hope for universal suffrage, which is finally enjoyed in many liberal states after a lot of struggle. And so disclaiming their legacies, I think, had a lot of consequences. You raise a fascinating point there, Sam, because you talk about their scepticism of things like the welfare state. Of course, the welfare state was built under democracies. It was built in the United States by FDR. But as I said before, a Republican like Eisenhower kept it in place. In the United Kingdom, it was installed by the Attlee Labor government, but every subsequent Tory government up to Mrs Thatcher kept it in place. What did they see as a threat from something like the welfare state? This is where I think things become a little murky because the Cold War liberals didn't reject the welfare state. Many were probably in favor of it. I don't just mean Berlin, but Karl Popper, the Austrian philosopher of science who eventually came to England to teach at the London School of Economics, probably also was first a kind of welfare state. And yet they were so caustic in their criticism of the state defending freedoms in terms of non-interference from the state, of which taxation is one form, that you could read their writings and find no defense of what liberals in their own day, Franklin Roosevelt and Clement Attlee and the rest, were actually doing, which was building the biggest and most interventionist and most egalitarian and most redistributive liberal states that had ever existed and that exist compared to our own more neoliberal states. And so when I fault the Cold War liberals, it's in a way for failing to see that the Enlightenment and the French Revolution also made possible the kinds of intrusive states that these Cold War liberals themselves personally supported, but Mm. their theories say nothing about them. Are we then talking about a subset of liberals that we today know of as neoliberals, deeply suspicious of the state, as you say, anti-tax, not particularly friendly to organised labour? Are we, in fact, talking about a subset? Almost, because they take an enormous step towards neoliberals. Sometimes they were in direct conversation with them, like Friedrich Hayek, who got Popper his job at the LSE and who returned the favor by attending the first Mont Pelerin conference, which was the kind of annual shindig for neoliberal intellectuals. But I think we should be fair. I mean, the main thing that Cold War liberals did was take a huge step away from the earlier liberalism and towards a more libertarian neoliberal vision out of their fear of the Soviet Union. The earlier form of liberalism in the United States had been called progressivism, associated eventually with Franklin Roosevelt. The Cold War liberals said very little about the necessity of a redistributive state. Instead, they castigated the state and called for private freedom against it. And so maybe if they supported welfare states, they shouldn't have been surprised that their own theories were often marshaled by neoliberals in defense of neoliberal policies, which Mm. of course are about keeping the state from intruding into the income and wealth of private individuals. I would say it's a complex relationship, but 
it's very important that Cold War liberals took such a huge step in the direction of neoliberalism. You've concentrated mainly on uh, Isaiah Berlin, Karl Popper, Gertrude Himmelfarb and Hannah Arendt. We'll get to her in a moment. But you do mention in a few places people like the Protestant minister Reinhold Niebauer and historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr., they were a very different kind of liberal, though, weren't they? I mean, I don't think that Schlesinger or Niebauer ever gave up on their New Deal values, uh, but they did see themselves pretty firmly on the left. And if we were to be sort of capacious, you could even put into that broad American political liberal camp people like uh, Sidney Hook and Irving Howe, who were involved with the democratic socialist movement for a while, couldn't you? I agree with the first part, and I'm not as sure about the second. It's right. true that Someone like Irving Howe, you know, founder of Dissent Magazine, was an anti-communist socialist. He has heirs even today in our political system in the democratic socialist movement that is staunchly anti-communist in its origins. But those people always placed much more emphasis on the socialist part of the bargain. Of course, it's true that Cold War liberalism was diverse and it evolved in really spectacular ways. In the 1960s, which I don't reach, Cold War liberals accepted much more of a, a kind of Cold War competition with communism in third world locales like Vietnam. What that meant was promising the world through development programs to third world states, in part to keep them from going communists. And that strikes me as doing things with the state, indeed on a global scale, mm -hmm. that were quite different from what some of the Cold War liberals in the later 1940s and early 50s I talk about were doing. So I concede a lot of diversity, but it's these ones that, in a sense, found Cold War liberalism and transmute it right after World War II in the first instance, who are the ones who seem to me to have the most significant intellectual legacy in our time, and that's why I single them out. On the Religion and Ethics Report, uh, we're speaking with Samuel Moyne about Sam's new book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Time. I began to wonder whether the Cold War liberals, or at least this camp that you write about, were actually more right-wing than a lot of Cold War small-C conservatives or big-C conservatives, because, you know, we referenced this before, but when you think of Harold Macmillan or Eisenhower or Conrad Adenauer in Germany or Robert Menzies in Australia, these were all conservative leaders who seemed to have no problem with taxing the rich or supporting the rights of organised labour or creating their own forms of of welfare state and public ownership, were the Cold War liberals to the right of some of their nominally conservative counterparts? I think that's an interesting way of putting it. And I do think it's very important that the practical men who led conservative parties had to accept and sometimes wanted to accept a much more redistributive state than Cold War liberals ever talked about. I mean, Christian democracy in West Germany inherited the legacy of Catholic social thought, which was not neoliberal, far from it. It was a time where class conflict remained real and trade unions had a lot of power. Conservative politicians were living in a world practically in which the welfare state had to be taken seriously. 
the Cold War liberals were intellectuals who were forging a political vision. Really, what I'm interested in is a kind of mismatch between their libertarian theories about freedom against the state and the very expansionist and redistributive states in which they were living. Mm. And the reason that matters is because if we look to the future, we know neoliberalism is coming that's going to destroy the practical premises, not just of Cold War liberal politicians like Harry Truman, but also of conservative ones, as you mentioned, like Dwight Eisenhower and his opposite numbers across the world, who accept the premises of the welfare state. Neoliberals did not. They rolled it back. Theoretically, Cold War liberals took a huge step towards them. And that's what I think you're getting at, which is very insightful. I was very disappointed, certainly not in the book, (laughs) far from it. I was disappointed to learn, though, from the book about Hannah Arendt, who I always thought, going back to the days when I first read, uh, well, I think I confess, maybe it was the crib notes on her famous book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. But I always appreciated her understanding of totalitarianism. Nazism and Stalinism surely fitted the bill What was wrong with Hannah Arendt's understanding of totalitarianism? What I've found is that Arendt's thought ended up incorporating a lot of Cold War liberal themes. Arendt didn't reject the Enlightenment because she really almost never wrote about it, preferring to take the Greeks and Romans as her inspiration. Freedom for her meant a more ancient form of freedom. Yet when she came to modern thought, she shared some of the same difficulties as Cold War liberals found with figures like Jean-Jacques Rousseau or the French Revolution or the early 19th century thinkers Hegel and Karl Marx, who were, of course, in the Cold War, as for Arendt, seen as kind of the founders of totalitarianism. But then there's another reason I find some trouble in our usually very laudatory depictions of Arendt, which was her racism. Now, it's Mm. there in origins, not just about black Africans, but even about Jews, if you look carefully. When we look further into her career, she, like the Cold War liberals, is in a sense living at the time of the greatest globalization of freedom in world history through the decolonization of the world. And yet, she was more openly than the Cold War liberals, very caustic in her rejection of decolonization as a way that might advance freedom. She saw it as most likely a recipe, much like the Bolshevik revolution for a kind of new slavery, especially because poor countries were almost necessarily going to be concerned with economics, which always for her was a recipe for slavery, not freedom. She ends up looking a lot like the Cold War liberals in really believing that it was the transatlantic states that incarnated where freedom could find refuge in a world of terror and totalitarianism. And it was really almost on racial grounds that she reached that conclusion. This kind of new look at her thought doesn't invalidate it. There's always more in it than anyone like me can find. But I think we should be troubled by some of the associations with Cold War liberals that she had. I often wonder too, though, whether the very strong Cold War liberalism actually 
it was counterproductive in some ways to their cause because if you think about a lot of countries in the global south or the third world, did this Cold War liberalism, this intolerance of any kind of reform actually push a lot of these countries into the Soviet orbit? Because Castro was actually not a Marxist when he first assumed power. It took a couple of years. Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, I don't think, was ever a Marxist. The African National Congress weren't totally Marxist outfit in South Africa. Uh, Allende was certainly a radical socialist, but he wasn't a a full-blown Marxist in Chile. Did the Cold War liberals actually push a lot of countries in the direction that they hated? I think it's a great question. I'm just going to mention this kind of piece of trivia that's in the footnotes. Arendt began to write her famous book on revolution because she attended a conference at Princeton University at which Fidel Castro gave the keynote address in this moment after 1959 when he actually visited the eastern seaboard of the United States and was greeted as a hero precisely because he wasn't a Marxist and only later was driven into a kind of geopolitical alliance with the Soviet Union. But your question is absolutely right that the kind of binarism that the Cold War liberals helped create a kind of dichotomy between freedom and slavery left many in the global south who really understood the need for economic reform and some kind of economic system that would at least provide a remedy for economic ills in the global south as something that Cold War liberals just couldn't stomach because of their libertarianism and their fear of a kind of road to serfdom, as Hayek put it. Any use of the state for transformative goals was something Cold War liberals, like neoliberals, found abhorrent and dangerous. And it's for this reason that these more moderate kinds of welfareists and socialists in the global South may well have seen the West as unwilling to even countenance the kinds of experiments they wanted to conduct in their countries. Yeah. Just finally, you have this great line by Gertrude Himmelfarb, and she says, a liberal reveres the good God, but respects the devil. That is pretty much the whole Cold War, though, in a nutshell, isn't it? We believe we're on the side of the angels, but we take the Soviet Union and the communist world very seriously. That's right. The big change that Cold War liberals bring is that they dismiss earlier liberals as naive, as if liberals before didn't know things could go wrong or that people could make mistakes. And the overcorrection I'm referring to is that Cold War liberals almost treated the devil as more powerful. It's as if people were so apt to err or sin that liberalism had to be defensive, guarding against the worst, preserving freedom, never attempting to enrich it, to combine it with more class equality. And I think the results in the long term, since of course the Cold War liberals were writing at a time of great abundance and growth, proved disastrous because when economic growth slowed down and neoliberalism began to lead to more and more class inequality, liberalism really had nothing to say about fighting back against that kind of evil, which of course has led to 
the populist explosions of our time, I think, had something to do with the election of Donald Trump at least once. And who knows if that will happen a second time. I thought we were going to have a discussion with an American intellectual that didn't touch on Donald Trump. But in your defense, you kept it till the last 10 seconds. (laughs) Sam, it's been terrific to speak with you as always. Sam Moyne's book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Time. Thanks for being with us on the program, Sam. Thanks so much as ever. And that is it for the show and the year. A big thanks to our wonderful producer, Hong Jang, for a great year. Thanks also to the very busy sound engineers. They do squeeze us in. Emrys Cronin, Roy Huberman, Craig Tillmouth, Bethany Stewart, Simon Branthwaite, Nathan Turnbull, Russell Stapleton, John Jacobs, Hamish Camilleri and Harvey O'Sullivan. And thanks to our studio coordinators, Ellis Fitzpatrick and Kate Levy, and to our executive producer, Murita Dias. I'm Andrew West. Join us again in 2024 for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.